Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. I want to keep the oil and gas and capital market stuff to 10 minutes because Mike and I have a bunch of follow-on to our comparison of Tesla and Amazon and some other things to get into. The price of oil, I've been sitting here with my old friend, Jared Kirk, and the price of oil is all about backwardation. And the insight I've had in the last week, I don't think I mentioned this last Wednesday because I think it was a Thursday or Friday event. The futures market does not necessarily do a good job of predicting what the price of oil is going to be five years from now. The reason for that is the people buying the option five years from now are selling. They want to sell oil five years from now. So if the number of people who want to sell oil five years from now is greater than the number of people who want to buy oil five years from now, the price is going to be lower. So just because the price of oil is $75 five years from now, it's the option price. It's not anyone's prediction of what the future price of oil is going to be. Now, we may get four years from now and the price of oil will be back at $40. And you'll say, you know, if you've got oil production, why in the world didn't you sell it forward? But my own view is that as we move away from oil as the principal transportation fuel, you know, gasoline and diesel and jet fuel and whatnot, and as we move from natural gas being a principal power fuel, the dislocation is going to be such that we're going to have this backwardation. So whatever oil company you own shares in, make sure they don't have too much debt and that will allow them to not hedge and take advantage of the backwardation. In other words, sell their oil at a hundred dollars today and not sell their oil four years from now at $70. Maybe it'll be a hundred dollars four years from now. You know, you just don't know. The option market isn't necessarily a good predictor. Same thing for natural gas. Now, natural gas has come off hard from, you know, 7 or $8, which is a crazy price for a uh, spring price. It's, you know, obviously the winter price is going to tend to be higher, and there's kind of two peaks now with all the air conditioning and summer prices high. So to have the in-between price, either spring or fall, the 8 or $9 is crazy. Now, the price is back in the fixes, and a lot of the, Natural gas stocks, I mean, and Taro, which you know, we helped start here, got to 45, and now it's down to 35. Southwestern, which we owned a lot of, was, you know, $8 and change, and now it's under $7. I, I don't know what to say about the price of natural gas, except that I think we're awfully high at 7 or $8 in a shoulder bump. So the approximate cause of this is recession jitters, China being locked down and concern about our economy. But the other thing is one of our LNG plants, our LNG capacity now, subject to about five feet a day being built, is around 13. And the Freeport plant, which is privately owned, it's some kind of fire, not really an explosion, but fire. The initial press release said that they'd be back in business in July. And last Tuesday, they came out and said back in business in December. So obviously, that was approximate cause of the price of natural gas going down. I think this is just going to be volatile, both oil and gas. And so just once again, be sure that the companies you own interest in or looking at or whatnot, have low debt 
and have, have learned to live with not hedging, I think is the right answer. In terms of the capital markets, the uh, I haven't followed the I'll try to get on C-SPAN tonight, Jake Powell's testimony uh, in front of the Senate today. I haven't even looked to see what the market's doing. But the Fed has a difficult position because they should have, with benefit of hindsight granted, started to bring the balance sheet down in April, May 21. They didn't. The balance sheet was still going up. Quantitative easing was still taking place in February, which is just ridiculous. All the publicity is on Fed funds rate. And of course, the last meeting, they took it up to 75 basis points. I personally, in terms of picking stocks down, living with stocks you're in, they even though they're down from significantly from prior levels, I really don't think too much about the Fed funds rate. So I'm really spooked. And the reason I would hold off buying new equity positions and things I own or things, new things, is we have never, never had a Fed balance sheet as large as it is at $9 trillion and like a $23 trillion economy. We didn't even do this kind of stuff until I, I'm not very good at keeping dates, but sometime after the OA recession, a great recession, as they call it, the Fed started to experiment with buying in government bonds and buying in mortgage bonds. And what they found was that it didn't make that much difference. When they took the balance sheet from under two trillion up to four and a half, and then when they took it from four and a half to four, they had taper tantrums. We had never, you know, before they took the balance sheet from four and a half trillion to four, and they had kind of a difficult time of it. We don't know what's going to happen when they try to take the balance sheet down by a trillion or a billion to a year. I mean, it's unknowable. And the consequences can, I mean, it can be, you know, some bank in Thailand going bust because, I mean, the consequences are totally, totally unknowable. And so in making new commitments, Mike and Jason, his partner, and I have decided that there is a parameter where you can uh, try to catch the proverbial falling night. If you're confident that you've got a business where the GNP five years from now isn't a whole heck of a lot more than the real GNP now, real GNP, not inflated GNP. And during that period, the business you're investing in has a strong enough competitive position so that it can increase its cash flow after CapEx, its free cash flow by 10% a year. And you could get the stock for debt plus equity times free cash flow 5% or as Garrett corrected me earlier, 20 times free cash flow, much better way than just saying a 5% free cash yield. You should buy that. Now, could it go down from there? Absolutely. Could you be wrong on it compounding at 10% a year? Absolutely. Could you be wrong on the run rate free cash flow? Yes. But at some point, you make money by buying when people are selling. And this is the rule we've come up with. Now, the two companies we've been focused on are Tesla and Amazon. And incredibly enough, before I turn it over to Mike, Mike and I are kind of, as long as Tesla got to $500, Mike and I are thinking Tesla might be a better buy than Amazon. And that's just extraordinary. If you'd asked us 
two months ago, whether we'd come to that conclusion, we would have said, you know, are you crazy? But Tesla has a better balance sheet than Ford or GM. Tesla generates free cash flow and they can, and Mike's going to lead us through the numbers. We went through them last week, but we'll go through them again. You know, there is 20 or 20 billion of free cash flow here. If they could make 2 million cars a year and they have four factories, which they paid for and each factory does about half a million cars. Now I completely oversimplified this, so we're going to turn it and I've been talking for exactly 11 minutes, so we're going to turn it over to Mike. So over to you, Mike, how you think Tesla can do 20 billion of free cash flow. This was a surprising one for me too, because I had never given Tesla enough credit for what they had built and looking under the hood, there's a lot under the hood, very different business than Ford or GM. Just the simple breakdown is if they do 2 million cars at the average price per car that they've done in the past, that gets you to $94 billion in revenue. Gross margins at 35% gets you to 33 billion in gross margin. Their OPEX are expected to stay flat, which would be about 8 billion, leaving them with an operating profit of 25 billion. The rest of the business is pretty much break even. So you're looking at a net income of about 25 billion. One of the ways I like to look at a business is when a business is investing a lot in CapEx, you don't want to overly penalize your free cash flow. So sometimes we'll just use depreciation as a proxy for, for CapEx rather than using the actual CapEx. And I think in the case of Tesla, that makes a lot of sense since they are scaling new factories, building new capacity, launching new product lines, et cetera. Those are all incremental. So the long story short is that net income number ends up being a pretty decent proxy for cash flow at 2 million units per year and 25 billion multiplies by 20 as our 20 X for free cash flow multiple gets you to $500 a share. Now the question is how hard is it for them to do 2 million units? I'd actually argue that their current capacity should get them maybe even closer to three. 3 million units. And the reason for that is, is we really don't know what the capacity of Berlin and Texas will be, but we know that those factories were designed much differently than any other factory, any other automotive factory in the world. So I think they're very well positioned. You could ask yourself whether the consumer is still going to be there wanting to buy 70, $80,000 cars. Their average price per car is 47000 but if you look at what they're selling in the U.S., it's much higher average price than that. So it's clearly being balanced out by some sales in other parts of the world. I think there's plenty of demand, especially considering the amount of people that are wanting to move over to electric. So I think they're in a great competitive position. And then contrasting that with Amazon, they've probably over-hired, over-expanded they talk about this a bit in some of their earnings calls that they've, the indicator that they'd used to help them predict growth kind of broke because of COVID and it caused them to make some over expansion mistakes. So they're going to have to dig out of that hole. And if the consumer struggles as a result of a recession, they will be more affected by it than Tesla, I believe. Yeah, I, I think the way we want to look at Amazon, and we'll get off Tesla and Amazon because we've been on it for a couple of Wednesdays. I think the way we want to look at Amazon, which I think Mike and Jason will be comfortable with, is we want to say that the e-commerce part of Amazon 
is going to be worth in five years about what it's worth now. And that it won't hurt. It won't be a cash drain on Amazon. So then we have to look at Amazon Web Services. And then I think the other thing we need to do, and, and we'll, we'll have more on this next Wednesday, because this is kind of a new insight. And that is we uh, need to look at the other businesses that Amazon has in addition to their warehouses and their logistics and whatnot. And we need to have a judgment about those businesses. And they are beginning to sell a lot of advertising on their e-commerce. I think we could look at that as a separate business. We're going to talk about later, we're going to talk about Facebook and Google and Apple. I think Amazon, you know, selling advertising, you know, as they, is a risk to those others. So it should be a plus for Amazon. They are with their Amazon Prime business, probably, you know, other than possibly Disney, the strongest competitor that Netflix has. So I think we have to look at that as a separate business. I think what we can come up with is a way to say, as Mike said, they overexpanded in their warehouse and their logistics. They're, let's say it takes a full four or five years to get back to use that extra capacity. And for that time, let's say that the e-commerce business just breaks even. That, I think, is a way to look at Amazon. And it could be that when we look at Amazon that way, we'll swing back between Tesla and Amazon, say maybe Amazon is a little more attractive than Tesla. But that's work, that's work that we can do and will do. Want to swing over to the other types of companies that, that, that are competitors here. Obviously, one is Facebook, which I've never even wanted to look at. I just didn't like the company. But I think Mike and Jason have come around. The other is Google, which we do like and I own. And then the other is Apple. And of course, Apple... Mike got into some of this last Wednesday is in a has kind of predatory position vis-a-vis Facebook and other people who are doing advertising somehow. And maybe Mike can get into this somehow. Google seems a little better positioned, but with that, going to turn it over to Mike for the next five minutes or so. So off you go, Mike. What Hunt's referring to there is app tracking transparency, and that's an initiative that. Apple rolled out to increase the privacy of your data on the iPhone. And with that, it made it harder for apps like Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, to access the particulars about you and track your purchases. When you see an advertisement, for example, on Facebook and then make that purchase in a web browser. So by by removing that layer of data, it's making it very difficult for not only Facebook, but the businesses that advertise through Facebook and many other apps. It's why they became uh, very unpopular as a result of that. And if you remember back when this was initially talked about and planned, this was 2020, Facebook took out full page advertisements in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and uh, basically saying this is bad for business. Unfortunately for Facebook, Facebook has a worse image than Apple does. So 
any tech company was public enemy number one, it was already going to be Facebook. So Facebook saying that we're doing the right thing for small business. Yes, it was bad for business, but Apple's protecting our data and we don't want our private information being shared to random advertisers. Unfortunately, it seems like Apple is gearing towards building their own advertising network. And as a result of the changes in their policies, they are first party to all the data on your phone. So the way that they are moving is to monetize advertising in some sort of new way. And we don't know exactly what they're doing. All we know is that they're hiring the best of the best ad from other advertising platforms in order to build out their own. So it's a big question mark, but that points to what is Apple? And if you buy the stock today, what exactly are you buying? The iPhone is it's safe to say that it's fully saturated. You can't really expect much in the way of growth in iPhone sales going forward. The Mac is seeing a resurgence in sales only because they finally released some updated Macs and they've developed their own silicon, which is better. So the gross margin on those products will be better. So you could probably expect, you know, 15 to 20% growth in Mac sales. iPad, I wouldn't expect huge amounts of growth there. And the wearables and home accessories, the earbuds and the home pods, they're not really moving the needle. The thing that moves the needle at Apple is services. One of the things we found out as part of the investigations that have gone on related to the Apple versus Epic lawsuit is that about 50% of Apple's services revenue actually comes from gaming. So people that play games on their phone make in-app purchases and you may pay $1 or $5 to, you know, buy a new life or play a game again, or however the monetization model works but Apple gets 30% of that. So it's a huge part of their income. And I think if you see a pullback in the consumer as a result of a recession, that could be effective. The flip side of that is as they grow an advertising network, that's likely to grow that services number fairly significantly. The net result of all this is that we had total revenue growth for Apple in 2021 of 33%. I don't think you're going to have another like that anytime soon. Analyst estimates have next three years, a, a high next year of just under 8%. And in 2024, just 4%. So I'll pause there. There's a lot of moving parts, but the long story short is that services are probably the most important piece of this puzzle in order to figure out what's happening with Apple. And uh, the one thing that I, I want to point out about Tesla, it doesn't impact Amazon, at least I don't think it impacts Amazon. And that is that Tesla's second factory, you know, outside of the original factory in California is in Shanghai. And so their second quarter results could be fairly weak, I think, because of disruption from lockdowns in China. The Berlin factory is just coming on and Mike's more familiar with this, but I think the Texas factory is behind the Berlin factory a bit. Remember the early days with Tesla, they had a heck of a time getting their production up. And so Mike correctly pointed out that, you know, it, these are discretionary items. You don't need to buy a Tesla and there will be cheaper versions. 
from the other car manufacturers. But the uh, we got here or got started to think about Tesla after we followed the string that was batteries. The original Tesla cars in California were batteries which are like half the cost of the car, were produced by Panasonic and I think Utah, Nevada. Then uh, LG Chem, the, the Korean company, became a formal competitor for Panasonic. But as near as we can see from the work we do with utility-scale batteries, CATL, which is not government-owned, it, it was a bunch of engineers got together and started the company have got way ahead in terms of quality batteries and manufacturing and whatnot. CATL has lapped Panasonic and has lapped LG Chem. They are the best battery manufacturing company in the world. The problem is they're based in China. That adds some additional risk. Is there some China risk in Tesla? Absolutely, because if they have a disappointing second quarter, disappointing third quarter, it'll be part of it'll be lockdown in Shanghai or all over China. Apple, most of the, you know, okay, so the services are maybe, I don't know, I, I'll have to go back and check this weekend, but I think they're 10 or 15% of the free cash flow. The big source of free cash flow is selling iPhones. And uh, I'm sure it's 50, 60% of the free cash flow. All those iPhones are a large percentage of those iPhones are made in China. By, uh, by Foxconn, which is a the largest, I think they have more space on the roof in China than any other company, which probably means they have more space on the roof than any manufacturing business in the world. Interestingly enough, in terms of geopolitics, Foxconn is headquartered in Taiwan. There's a big China risk in Apple. I've avoided the stock to my dismay because of the China risk, but you know, you Obviously, have a big China risk with the ATL and a significant China risk with Tesla. Investing is all about making sure, you know, taking the maximum effort to not lose money and, and then, you know, have something that compounds at 10 or 15% a year is what you're looking to do. We've got a couple of minutes left. I'm going to turn them back over to uh, Mike so he can give you a, for, you know, a, a, a forecast of what will be in, what will be discussing next Wednesday, but but we will, I promise you. We're so fascinated by this Tesla versus Amazon thing. I promise you we will get on to other things. And with that, Mike will give you a forecast for where we'll be next Wednesday. We've got four minutes. I wouldn't mind running through the Facebook valuation really quickly because it's counterintuitive in some ways. So like Hunt said, it's kind of public enemy number one. So a lot of people don't like it and won't consider buying stock. And sure enough, if you look at the valuation on a trailing 12 months basis, it's trading at a 9.3% free cash flow yield. So I ran through the exercise. Well, what if you just subtracted 10 billion off because you don't like what Zuckerberg's doing with the metaverse and just considered that wasted spend, you'd still be at a seven and a half percent cash flow yield. But that doesn't exactly tell the whole picture. And that's because the things that I was explaining earlier related to Apple and ATT are affecting their gross margins, their operating income. And we have enough data now that we can 
kind of have a decent picture as to what we think that's going to look like. So using the Q1 data, I got the, basically the new gross margin, which went from in the 80%, 80, 81% range down to 78%. Operating income went from 40 to call it 30%. So it's having a material impact on their business. If you run through, use those percentages and the analyst estimates for revenue for 2022, which is 126 billion, you end up with a estimated net income of 31 billion. There's about $10 billion worth of share based compensation. If you add that back, you get to $41 billion in cash flow as a decent approximation. If you divide that by the number of shares, you get to $15 and 19 cents a share or 20x that would be over a little over $300 per share. So it's currently trading 158. So it's still relatively cheap on a forward free cash flow basis. I then looked at it again and said, Hey, what if I knock off that $10 billion for that Zuckerberg is spending each year on the metaverse? And I just call that all lost. So we go from $41 billion in free cash flow to $31 billion, yet to 1148 a share of forward cash flow, multiply that by 20 and get 229, which is still better than the 158 today. If you decided you weren't willing to pay 5% or a 20x free cash flow, maybe you'd pay 15x free cash flow, that'd be 172 straight today at about 14. So objectively, it's still, it's fairly cheap. You know, the bet you have to make is, will Facebook still be in a good position post ATT to win advertiser spending dollars. Yeah. We will have more on Facebook next week. I just have a visceral reaction to Facebook. I just never imagined myself as a Facebook stockholder, but you know, I think, uh, visceral reactions aren't the same as looking, having a close look at cash flow. I think one of the things we have to focus on is given the pressure they have from the Apple privacy situation or Apple being predatory. Do we think that their free cash flow, let's say it's 31 billion, let's say you, you know, the founder and CEO spends 10 billion a year on, on the metaverse, will the 31 billion compound at 10% a year over the next five years, which, you know, that would take the 31 billion to something like 55 billion. So I, I think that's the next test we have to put on uh, Mike's analysis. With that, everyone take, take care, stay safe, and we'll be on next Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.